This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us today on TGIF DCT. Whether you're joining us here on Clubhouse Live on Fridays at 12 noon or through the podcast Decentralized, Make sure you're giving a follow so that you can stay current with whatever latest episodes we're dropping. We gather here every Friday from 12 to 1 Eastern live on Clubhouse to talk about a range of topics related to decentralized trials and research and helping to make participation accessible for everyone at global scale. Uh, you're, uh, you're always welcome to join us here live. We typically follow a consistent format where we open up the floor at about halfway into our hour together and look to listen to your feedback, your experiences. If this time slot doesn't work for you, that's okay. We have another option out there for you through the podcast Decentralized, which picks up the replays from our live episodes as well as top episodes from over the past year and a half that we've been having this this gathering over here. So whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple podcast, or whatever your favorite podcast platform, go ahead and subscribe over there so that if we drop some additional episodes or special stories that we may add, you'll be sure to get notified over there. This week, we're picking up on an exciting initiative within DTRA, the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, around a global conduct map for decentralized trials. But before we jump in, some of us uh, had ventured up to Boston just pat this past week before the uh, 4th of July holiday here in the U.S. for the DIA annual meeting. And um, Amir, uh, I don't know if you have any takeaways or highlights on your mind as we get things started today. Well, the biggest highlight was seeing you and Jane and everyone else in person, for sure. Um, and I think there was some really, really good um panels for sure from regulators some of them were actually particularly good uh they're not always you know that compelling but uh because sometimes they just can't say anything they haven't said publicly but uh, i actually thought that some of the regulatory panels were really good lots of other panels are fantastic obviously we had our dtra panel that you and jane talked to our uh, collaborating organizations and then um, i did have fun you know on the, on the opening plenary and i think got a lot of good feedback and that was about you know AI in particular, but also diversity and um, issues like that. Um, but I think that, you know, we try to make on the opening uh, plenary around what people need to do around AI coming. And my basic message to everyone was, 
you can't ignore this one. <laughs> you can't sit this one out. And if you haven't worked on, you know, playing with uh, and learning how to do better prompting, you really need to. And, uh, you know, it was good. I asked the audience how many have never actually, you know, tried engaging with, with the new models. And actually, quite a few people had never done so. And quite a few reached out to me afterwards and said they, that was the, uh, sort of the nudge they needed to kind of do so. I think that's the only way you're going to really understand you know, what's, what's happening and what's coming at us. And what I told people was the people I know who are closest to this, who've been working on this for decades, are both the most excited and the most terrified of this. So <laughs> those are the people who know most about it. So I think it's something people need to know about. So that was good. And I think in general, I thought it was a really productive week for those who went. That, uh, that opening plenary that you mentioned was fabulous. Um, on that theme of diversity, innovation, and AI, uh, chaired by our friend Junaid Bajwa from Microsoft. I, I had scribbled down his uh, opening perspective when he started that. Diversity is the fuel of innovation. Innovation is the engine of transformation. AI is the accelerator of transformation. It's a lot of words, but it really speaks to the power of diversity fueling so much of this opportunity, diversity of insight, diversity of talent and perspective, um, and the role of AI as an accelerator for this. Um, but you're right, uh, Amir, the, the audience was a little split in terms of how many folks have, have gotten their hands on ChatGPT or BARD or any of these opportunities to, to start to learn and learn how to uh, ask questions and prompt in ways that can get, you know, really level up and upskill their work. Yeah, I think it was a great panel because obviously Junaid did a fabulous job uh, doing the talk before and then uh, moderating the panel. And he's, if you don't know him, he's such a great human being as well, but he's just a fantastic friend. Um, we also also had Najat Khan, who's at J&J, driving many things, including data science and strategy. And then we had uh, uh, Zach Kahane from uh, Harvard, who's written the book on AI, basically. And Armin from Flagship, who um, has a whole bunch of MIT uh, people under him working on AI and ML in drug development. So yeah, it was really different perspectives. And I think uh, really exciting to see what people are up to, what they're working on and how I think many of us have been frustrated by the um, slow uptake of uh, different waves of technology. Um, I have a feeling that this one, we're going to be actually kind of the opposite. <laughs> it's going to come running at us and uh, at a pace that we haven't seen before. So for sure. I did a uh, fun conversation with Dirk Arts from Castor on LinkedIn Live a couple of weeks ago talking about some use cases in clinical trials. I'll, I'll repost that on LinkedIn uh, later today. But Armin, who you mentioned, gave you know a real pearl that really stuck with me after. He really challenged our thinking about hallucinations with these LLMs and how you know, many of us have started to, you know, be told that, you know, there's going to be these, these very compelling sentences and the responses from the LLM that are just plain wrong and make sure we're throwing them out. Uh, he positioned that some of those hallucinations are actually sources of great potential insight. Why did the machine think this way? Why did it give this particular answer? It reminded me of how many of us were raised with this term junk DNA, which turned out it was really just our description of DNA we didn't understand, but we were busy educating people to to take this DNA and, and just toss it out. It's, it's, uh, it's junk in between all the things that matter. Um, great panel, great insights there. And of course, Jane was on a uh, panel, as you mentioned, that featured 
the work of DTRA alongside of uh, important updates from other partner organizations, also delivering great work, many of whom we've had here on the show. Uh, groups like ACRP, City, um, groups uh, that we've had at the bio event like ACRO or with us uh, uh, here like Transcelerate, um, all delivering important solutions that complement the DCT space. Um, and Shane, you gave a little teaser about a tube stop map. Do you want to do you want to drop a breadcrumb for folks about that? Sure. So. Um... Some of you might know I had the pleasure of co-leading an initiative that was to design a playbook on implementing DCTs. And that has turned into what we're calling the tube stop map. So think of a subway where you'll get some guidance at each stop along the way of designing and executing a study on what you might want to think about as you're going about designing and implementing your DCT. So that's not live yet, but it will actually end up being one of the places where a lot of outputs from the initiatives of DTRA and the resources from our partner orgs will be hosted. So you can look forward to that in probably early September, maybe late August. Great teaser. We'll make sure we're keeping folks aware through the Clubhouse TGIF uh, show here, through the podcast, as well as on social. Today we're talking, though, about global regulatory, um, variability global regulatory tracking, and how can we help remove the barriers that so many perceive around navigating global regulation with decentralized trials. One thing that was great about uh, the DI annual meeting, and just like we saw with the DTRA annual meeting uh, back last November, is having the regulators there in person, sharing their feedback, and certainly pointing to whether emerging guidance, existing guidance, or other resources that were available. Uh, certainly last November at the DTRA annual meeting, we had the regulators from uh, EMA and FDA talking about the guidance and the recommendations that were on their way at this point in time and where we are in July, those are now available, whether in draft form or otherwise. But it was great to see regulators from Taiwan and other regions also taking to the stage, uh, sharing so much about uh, in, a, in such a transparent way about what regulators are currently thinking. Um, that leads us to the topic today about what types of tools and resources are coming that can help in terms of disintermediating um, some, of, uh, some of the regulatory knowledge, democratizing it, so that researchers of, uh, of all types can have access to this information when they're planning, designing, and executing studies at global scale. Um, Jane, where should we kick things off with our special guests here today? Well, let's, let's start with some intros so everyone knows who's here and how they were connected. And then I think I would ask one of those people, maybe Claudine, to start with the why. Why did we build this anyway? Okay. So I will start off with a brief introduction. Um, my name is Claudine Paccio. I started my career about 30 years ago um, with GE and Dell. Um, 
I've spent the last 10 years in clinical trials and have led um, operations teams for what I would call DCT vendors. So in the ECOA, EPRO, eConsent payment space. And the past two years, I've been consulting with DHRA um, to bring the first of their 12 initiatives um, from startup to finish. And so during that time of helping to create those teams that consisted of about 250 people um, in the 12 teams, we have taken them from charter to our deliverables, um, finishing off just about all of our 12. We have one that will be completely finished in August. But as one of those teams, um, it was team 4A. And I do want to give um, credit to the co-leads and uh, previous PM of the team that were not able to join us today. So I'm speaking for them um, as well. So Ami um, Balakumar from Accenture was the PM of this team. Uh, Jennifer Aquino was from IQVIA. Um, she was a co-lead and could not join us today. And Conan Billigen um, from Roche, Genentech, was also a co-lead. And then Tom came on, and I'll have him introduce himself later. But to go back to Jane's question about the why, um, you know, we know that regulations are located and, and governed in many different areas. Uh, sometimes they're explicitly uh, said, and sometimes they're just implied. And so the team really worked to try to consolidate the regulations um, and the relevant requirements into one location to really help the wider community gain access to that information um, and take that into consideration when they're coming up with DCTs. So that was really the biggest, you know, the, the why we needed to do it. The information is very different country by country around the globe. Thanks, Claudine. Um, Tom, do you want to pick up from there in terms, so we, we, we had this challenge, right, in terms of the, the ecosystem, um, not understanding well global regulation. It, it's a great barrier. It's a great fallback for folks to point to to say why they can't do certain things. What was, what was it that the team here is, uh, is looking to deliver to help to fill some of that gap? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Hi, everyone. Tom Brazier here, um, work for MD Group, we're a patient services company, we offer mobile health and uh, patient travel and payment support. Uh, I head up our decentralized solutions team over here. Um, and I also was project manager for the, the 4A initiative, as Claudine alluded to just. Um, and just to, just to briefly add to, to what Claudine was saying in terms of the why, um, so from personal experience, I sort of came into the decentralized space just over a year ago in my in my current role and yeah one of the things that was was part of my remit was kind of exploring the regulatory landscape and it very quickly became apparent the the scale of the task and the i guess the the lack of clarity or or the lack of regulation in, in a lot of countries a lot of regions of the world and where there was guidance it maybe didn't completely answer all the questions that we had uh, and go to the the level of detail that we might have liked so we yeah, we had this we had the 4a initiative which gave us the remit of creating a central library of regulatory legal privacy and culture information um and we we really worked to to evaluate what was out there um and pull together not only links but also like a, a plain language summary i guess of some of the some of the key information within uh different pieces of regulation from around the globe um, in the hope that that would would help people to Craig's point um, not get hung up on the on the gaps on the lack of clarity um, and would 
remove or help remove or reduce the barriers associated um, with getting decentralized and hybrid studies up and running. So I'll chime in here and say that this is very much needed and I've I've waded in those waters too, Tom. It's it's a bit <laughs> murky. Um, one thing I'm going to call out from the DIA last week is that the regulators themselves are starting to recognize that they're really not aligned on how different tools can be used in different places. And I was actually kind of nerdily excited, I guess that's a word, when um, the chief medical officer of the EMA showed a slide that demonstrated the complexity of trying to initiate direct patient shipments across European countries. He said, this is a mess and we need to do better. So the message from that is they recognize there's complexity they need some help to identify how to make it easier, in my opinion, but they're interested in doing that. And Craig, Amir, you may have other thoughts there. No, I agree. I mean, it, it, that was a good slide and I think um, they really demonstrated the challenges somewhat like the EU for sure. It does remind me of decades ago when I worked for a very large organization, nothing to do with DCTs, but we had a global conduct uh, maps that were software driven where you would put in aspects of the protocol, whether it was a placebo arm, whether it was, you know, severity of the illness, etc. And some regulatory information and it will give you, uh, it will spit out kind of a map of the world for that particular program. And it'll be green, yellow, red of where you should go and shouldn't go. So we've certainly, uh, you know, needed something like this pre-DCT just for the conduct of global trials as it was. And I think obviously DCT adds a whole new layer of complexity to it. Jennifer, Tom, as, as you're hearing some of that and some of these different areas, you know, you, we all hear these tidbits, right? In this market, um, it was a challenge about shipping of investigational product. In that market, there is ambiguity about signatures on electronic informed consent or um, audit trails related to electronic diaries. I'm wondering if either of you have kind of sensed any trend as you've been talking with different folks about the challenge of regulatory variability, where, where are people sensing these pain points like Jane is pointing out around variability on a country by country basis? Tom, Jennifer, any taker there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think it's hard to pinpoint any one area, right? Um, I think the when when I started on the initiative, there was we weren't we didn't have the EMA or the FDA guidance papers for a start. So those two those two guidances have gone, I would say, a significant distance to to closing some of the gaps that that we did have, which is great. Um, but obviously, the EMA paper doesn't harmonise all the EU countries, but it summarises what their, their current or their regulatory status was at the stage that the paper was written back in, in December. Um, certainly, direct patient shipments is an area where I think the the ambiguity, if you like, is, is significant across the board. Um, and partly, I, I think that's that's inevitable because there is just so much variability in 
the characteristics of, of different IPs across the board. So for regulators to give sweeping statements would be probably a bit misleading um, in those scenarios. But I do think those those two guidance papers I referenced before have, have definitely gone a significant way to, to closing some of the gaps and dropping the barriers, increasing kind of confidence, I suppose, from from sponsor organisations. So that's those have both been great to see. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tom. Craig, uh, thanks for calling on me. I just want to introduce myself quickly. Jennifer Turcott. Uh, I've been helping Craig, Jane, Amir. Uh, and the rest of the DTRA organization in particular sort of bring this global conduct map to life, um, really organize the information, uh, lay it out so it's easy to find and search for things. Uh, and I've been helping the team for a few months having just uh, come from Salesforce where I was leading the pharmaceutical strategy. Um, prior to that, spent some time at Genentech uh, and really sort of understand the landscape of what's happening with clinical trials and decentralized trials. So I think just to add on, I think a lot of um, sponsors and, and really organizations are looking at leaning into very like local folks on the ground in that country for guidance as well. So what's really happening um, experimentally um, in reality with trials in that country and how are they interpreting the guidance. So I think that there is, you know, the guidance that's documented, um, the regulations, we've got our global conduct map, but I think it's a starting point. And I think in a lot of cases, teams are leading on local folks to kind of understand um, what really is being done in country and how far are they taking um, some of the techniques that can be used in decentralizing trials. So Jennifer, when teams are relying on local folks, let, let's double click on that. Are those regulatory experts within pharma and biotech companies? Are they vendors who've been navigating uh, service delivery in these areas? Who, who can people rely on um, for kind of trusted insight? I think that's a good question. I don't <clears throat> rely. Yeah, I think it's about leveraging all of those resources. So I think it's regulate regulators where possible. I think it's vendors um, where they're in country. And then I think it's actually working with your peers and talking to other folks that have experience running trials in those countries. So I think it's not necessarily one, um, one resource that might be helpful there. Jane, you look like you want to add to this, which would be great. <laughs> I will. Thanks. Um, so I had the good fortune of being able to rely on my affiliate colleagues in different countries for questions like this. But what was really fascinating to me was that because they were new ideas or methods, sometimes, and I'm just saying this with no judgment, the easy answer was no, because even if you had a pathway that gave you um, evidence that the regulators were thinking about it, the cultural acceptability and readiness just wasn't there. So one thing that we may build out later, we don't have it now, is that cultural context layer on top of the regulatory green, yellow, red layer. But it, we don't quite have that yet in this tool. 
So regulatory go is not always the thing that drives adoption. That's a great point. So we can really break this down a bit, right? What, can I use X method in Y country? And to Jane's point, there is a question about regulation, policy, privacy, and other rules that may be in place. And we can put sunlight on those. We can make those insights available and, and even try to put a, a traffic light of sorts around that. From there, there are questions of cultural preference, both among patients, caregivers, and researchers, investigators, and physicians in those regions and communities. Their preferences, say, around home health or using certain digital approaches will be material. And then, of course, is an organization's own culture and their own willingness when it comes to evaluating and, and weighing risk. Nothing in any region, U.S., Europe, or emerging markets is ever perfectly clear and cut and dry with most anything that we do. And so we're always measuring a modicum of risk. And it's always a question within our organization of what types of risk we're willing to evaluate and consider in different ways. Fortunately, precedent helps. And so the more we're able to document truth and what's been done in different markets in terms of past performance and experiences in different geographies, I think that'll be a great complement to this type of an insights map that can track truth in terms of regulation and policy and be nicely complemented by real-world experience of different organizations. Tom, I think you had a perspective on this one as well. Yes, I was, yeah, I was just going to add that I think one of the things that this initiative shone a light on for me was that, yeah, to your point, the regulators are never going to spell out for us what, what we need to do on a, on a trial. It's, it, there's always going to, be, going to be an element of interpretation required. Um, and it, I think in, in most cases, the regulators are, are really open to having those conversations as long as they happen early, right, and they're proactive um with both like ema fda um requesting things like risk assessment so they want they want to see that we've thought it through that we've thought about the risks and that we've mitigated where possible um, or at least greatly reduced the risk of certain things happening especially if they have an impact on trial data or patient safety but there's a general openness and willingness to to kind of drive adoption of some of these new tools as long as it's benefiting patients protecting safety, well-being, and trial data integrity. In just a couple of moments, we're going to open up the room and would love to hear your experiences in different geographies, whether challenges, ambiguities, or real-world positive experiences navigating decentralized approaches in different geographies around the world. Um, Jennifer, I'm wondering your thoughts or uh, as we're as we see this type of a map come to life, how does it stay fresh? There are certainly evolving expectations, new experiences that different organizations will uh, um, start to release. We'll see guidance and we'll see guidance updated over time or new guidance and clarity in other markets. Um, do, you, do you see a path for ensuring that resources like this can stay fresh in such a dynamic field? Yeah, excellent question and um, a point I think it's important to mention to everybody on the call. So you can find the global conduct map on the DTRA website. You can find it under resources. 
Um, it's a, it looks like a spreadsheet. It's in an air table. Um, it's really easy to digest the information. We've made it very simple. Um, basically, the rows are um, each of the regions and countries, and then across the top, the columns are really some of the key uh, technical capabilities or other capabilities that might be used um, to start or do a decentralized trial. Um, and then from there, there are other <clears throat> tabs within the spreadsheet where, uh, as Claudine and Tom mentioned, you can go and double click into the US, the EU, or the Asia Pacific regulatory references. Um, so, you know, this obviously was a huge amount of work that's taken um, many, many months to complete. And really, it's only as you know, relevant as the last time it was touched. So I think what we're looking for is for all of us on the call and the entire uh, decentralized clinical trial community to work together to try and keep this up to date. Um, and one of the ways that you can do that is there is on this page a complete feedback form. So if you come across something on this global conduct map that seems out of date, incorrect, um, maybe you're just questioning one of the references, anything, um, please complete the feedback form. And then I think, you know, Jane, myself and the team have talked about also systematically how do we keep this up to date and so i think it's something that as an organization probably will we will look at um, trying to twice a year look at it um, kind of do a clean sweep across any updated regulations uh, and do an update on it Jane, that fits into a broader strategy around ensuring freshness for solutions being created today? Yes, it does. So we have a small content council, um, members of DTRA leadership committee who help us look at the feedback we receive for any of the resources we've put out in the world and then take decisions on how to update things. We meet more than biannually, but you may only see updates about twice a year. Great. Well, we are at the bottom of the hour. For those of you joining us live here on Clubhouse, or for those that may have just joined here on Clubhouse, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. If you're new to Clubhouse and haven't given a follow to the club, you can just tap Decentralized Trials in the somewhere near the upper left of your screen that'll give you access to the club and house or whatever clubhouse is calling it today but you can follow over there and be notified about upcoming uh gatherings you can also find replays of conversations that we've had here spanning over a year and a half now it's a it's a great library of resources from different experts in the field on all things related to decentralized research whether technical around interoperability and data flow to regulatory and policy considerations patient factors around diversity experience access um, recruitment really uh, the sky's the limit of course these topics come from you the folks in this community and so if there's a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead please drop a line 
to myself, Amir Kalali, Jane Miles, reach us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, here on Clubhouse. Heck, some of us are even on threads, whatever that may be. Or if that's not your speed, you can always send an email to secretariat at dtra.org and let us know topics that you'd love to see us cover in the time ahead this week. Today, we're speaking with a team that's been putting together a global regulatory insights map uh, together on decentralized research, gathering insights around regula regulation and other considerations on a country by country basis uh, as an initiative at DTRA, the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance. Our guests this week, Jennifer Turcott, Tom Brazier, and Claudine Paccio, leaders that have been driving this work and we're thrilled to have them here. If you're here with us live, this is a great opportunity to tap at the bottom of your screen, a little hand raising icon that will give us the signal that you'd like to share an experience, a question, a perspective. Take advantage of that. That's the fun part of being with us live. If you're listening along on our podcast, Decentralized, just tap follow or subscribe through whatever platform you like. And at the very least, you'll stay current about when we've got some new areas coming up. Amir, Jane, based on our conversation so far, questions on your mind related to the current or the future state with regulatory and global insights for decentralized research? You go first, Amir. Um, I think as we discussed, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that the regulators understand that you know they need to make it more easy for people to navigate this. And I think, uh, you know, with the work we're doing at DTRA also uh, that we're discussing, um, I'm optimistic that, you know, more than ever, we can actually really try and help people uh, not feel this is an excuse not to conduct global trials like this. I'm going to give a shout out to IMI and the radial trial, which is just about to enroll its first patient in the next week or so. Maybe they already have. But the important thing there is that that is a trial where they're using a lot of these methodologies across seven European countries with an approved medication. And I think that'll drive a lot of that evidence we've been seeking on how hard or easy is it to actually implement these strategies across those countries and what can we learn and share back to make it more simple. That's a great reminder as well that we have right now the FDA's draft guidance is out there and available and in folks' hands. That document is receptive for feedback throughout the month of July that you can submit back to the FDA. Certainly DTRA is consolidating a response based on our community of stakeholders. Your organizations can also respond. You as an individual can respond. And that um, opportunity is open until August 1st. Uh, so be sure to take a look at the FDA got draft guidance on decentralized trials and lend your voice to that. It is interesting, you know, there's so much in the FDA's draft guidance that's um, validating and some that's new. A lot of the discussion at DIA was around this topic of role of healthcare providers who are not investigators in uh, trials and the challenge or role of oversight 
that investigators have to play given the diversity of stakeholders and data sources? How do investigators ensure proper oversight with visiting nurses, with connected devices sending data, and in this model in the FDA's draft of having even local healthcare providers providing some routine care standard of care activities? Global drug developers, global research teams have to reconcile these different types of insights and ensure they're able to take advantage of the new, like this role of HCPs, while also ensuring that they're fulfilling and demonstrating the um, requirements of an investigator to have proper oversight. Claudine, I see you have a perspective here. Yeah, I, I would just like to point out to, you know, really encourage everybody to share this with their teams to go through and look at it, um, you know, as you're looking at doing a DCT trial, because there's a lot of information behind there. Jennifer did a lot of work to make sure it was as accurate at that point in time. But it is a really easy way to go in and see which countries would, you know, allow e-consent, for example. Um, but really to share that and let the resource be known uh, throughout, you know, all the organizations to be able to use it. And let me go ahead then and throw that resource into the links at the top of the screen. We'll also add it um, on the DTRA uh, LinkedIn feed. How does that sound for my friends from the DTRA staff? If we can throw a link to the global conduct map up there on LinkedIn so that folks who may be listening and want to check that out at a later date, maybe they're on the podcast, will know how to find it. As Claudine mentioned, this is a resource of insights, but it's also a snapshot. And so it is important for this to be dynamic and to receive your feedback. All DTRA resources that are released have a feedback form. We're always looking for insights from the crowd, from the community, from you. And so based on your experiences in these different markets, if you're sensing otherwise, or seeing a window opening or a door you're worried is shutting, make sure you're signaling that and, and sharing that insight. As Claudine mentioned, that's a part of how these resources will stay fresh, meaningful, and relevant. So, Jane, as we think about what's next, you had sort of dropped a few breadcrumbs, whether that's perhaps leaning in around other types of um, other types of insights on a country by country basis. Do you do you see a pathway for capturing cultural or other perspectives? within some of these geographies around these decentralized methods? Yeah, I do actually. And it probably is an add on to what you and Claudine were just mentioning. So if you have feedback that yes, you were able to implement this strategy in country X with regulatory, legal and privacy acceptability, tell us what was hard culturally. Like, is it hard and I'm, some places feel differently about these new methods. Is it hard to get the researchers to adopt these methods or is it easy? And the reason I call that out is because I did something like this a few years ago and it became a very helpful um, tool in discussions with different countries to see where they were on the readiness to adopt scale. 
it wasn't their regulatory setting. It was their cultural setting. Um, and that actually provoked some really interesting dialogue and new strategies to help drive uptake and adoption. So don't just tell us if we got the regulation wrong, which we want to know, but also even if you could get it to get um, accepted by the regulators, were your investigators willing to use it? That would be really helpful to us. And that's going to link into some adjacent work now at DTRA related to understanding and, and helping to address some adoption challenges for investigators and, and research site staff. Is that right, Jane? Yeah, that ties into a couple of things. One is some work we're trying to do to objectively quantify where different methods are getting used and in which sorts of studies. The other is exactly as you say, to better understand what are the elements that will help sites get more comfortable using these tools or what do we need to change together to make it easier? Tom? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, um, ha having done a lot of work in the mobile health or home health space, I certainly have had some exposure to uh, like site reluctance to to take up some of these services specifically around mobile health and i think yeah there's there's a whole ton of stuff we can we can do better um to help sites in their fulfill their requirements but also just to increase their understanding of what what we're actually offering here um i think specifically from a mobile health perspective it, it's quite clear to see that that some investigators would have a hard time getting their head around oversight of someone they they may not have met they haven't directly trained um but there's a there's loads of things we can do around having them join visits via telehealth platforms sort of making sure that they're involved in the in the evaluation of certain vendors so i know that was one of the points out of the ema guidance was around making sure that it's in things like ctas and that investigators are part of the the design of the study the selection of certain dct vendors i think if if those conversations can be had at the earliest possible level if it can be kind of baked into study documents protocol ctas etc then i think it's much more likely to be adopted by those investigators rather than if you turn up to an sov and go "Ta-da! here's a mobile health solution for you and it hasn't necessarily been factored into their budgets for example um, that's where we've certainly seen the most challenges I think that's also an interesting difference between the EMA position paper and the FDA draft guidance, where maybe they are thinking similarly, Tom, but it isn't called out specifically. Mm -hmm. Hey, Craig, I see Shalon has a question here. He does. I'm guessing Shalon's multitasking today and had a question about intra-US and regulatory and policy and whether we've seen any factors that vary between states other than professional license status. Has the team um, looked at within US variability and concerns on a state-by-state -state basis other than the challenges around licensing considerations for investigators themselves? 
I don't believe that's been in scope as yet. Is that right, Claudine or Tom? I see you. That, yeah, sorry, that, that is true. With That was not within scope. It's a great question and, um, you know, something that we should explore, but that, that wasn't what the team um, itself looked into, um, unless Tom has some more insight than I have on that. Yeah, I was going to say the same, Claudine. So we, we looked at kind of large regulatory agencies rather than local regulations as part of the first release, but agree it's definitely something that, that could be a, a great add later on. It's a great question. I mean, certainly telemedicine and internet prescribing considerations come to play along with medical licenses. I'm not aware of any concerns specific to other aspects of, say, shipping of investigational product that may vary on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, if others in this room are aware and want to lend their voice, feel free to raise your hand or if uh, you're multitasking, lend it as a comment in the room chat um, and certainly something for the group to consider as we're looking at the evolution of the uh, global map, making sure that we're fully cognizant of other constraints in our federation of states here in the U. I'll chime in and say, I don't know that there's a regulatory difference per se, but that doesn't mean that you won't have different opinions from local ethics review committees within the US, um, especially as this is newer for some of them. And I can only surmise that that is why the FDA suggested that it may be helpful to use a central ethics review board when getting these studies approved. Great point as far as uh, one strategy for navigating. Um, you know, there it's been interesting to see the fits and starts around uh, around different federal efforts to try to nationalize licensing for investigators in the in the U.S. I think there was some optimism that coming out of COVID that um, even as recently as the last presidential State of the Union address that there may be some. Uh, calls from Washington to federalize at least licensing as it relates to um, coverage for investigators in research. We don't have we don't have a a a board that credentials and licenses investigators like we like we uh, might have for other types of specialists in this country. Um, and so technically, all of this is really, even though we might have an IND with the FDA, so much still falls back to state boards of medicine and state boards of pharmacy in the U.S. that in most cases don't call out investigational product or, in, or, or, or a role of investigator. They're, they're talking about physicians prescribing commercially available medicines, but that's kind of the default policy, if you will, that exists, a law that exists, regulation that exists for investigators in the U.S., um, which certainly seems like a, a startling gap that could be addressed by some effort to, to nationalize. Um, state boards of medicine in this country, though, seem to be quite powerful and um, in maintaining state autonomy on this topic. So I 
doubt we'll see a big shift in that uh, happen and without without a, a lot of effort to make that change. Amir, I know you've navigated that as a uh, provider yourself. I'm not sure how many uh, countries or states you're, uh, you're able to prescribe in, Amir. Um, I am certified as a physician in three continents, for sure. <laughs> Still. So you could be a very valuable investigator for the right decentralized trial. Right. <laughs> I'm really curious to hear from anyone in the audience if you've encountered challenges and if so, how you've navigated them with any DCT solution you were trying to operationalize across multiple countries. So who's got something they're willing to share? In the meantime, Jane, while folks are considering that, do you have experiences yourself that you've heard or a question for uh, Tom, Jennifer, or Claudine to throw out? Well, I am really interested in this um, situation Tom brought up. Like, while lots of sponsors like to use a central providing service for mobile research nurses, some physicians and PIs have preferred services they would like to use. They're already in place. And I'm curious if you've experienced that, Tom, and, and how you've navigated that. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly experienced it, yes. Um, and it's there's, there's variation within that experience as well. So it's, sometimes it's that, although I'd say this is relatively rare, so, but sometimes sites would want to send their own personnel out to do home visits, but that is, that's not particularly rare. It's, it's usually in the nuance of how the service is provided. So for example, and this is probably opening up a whole big conversation, like where do you put an HCP? What document do they go on? DOA log, task log. 1572 <laughs> other um, do you have a full contract with a site do you is it covered under the sponsor contract so that the documentation of it is where we often have the the questions and the and the pushback from sites um, we're often able to find an amicable solution um, but that and I, I think that's possibly an area of the FDA guidance that has is a bit of a gray area <laughs> in terms of their definition around local HCPs and adding them to task logs and where the the line is drawn between that and um, sub investigators and having to go on 1572s. It's so funny but, you mentioned that, Tom, because I am literally building <laughs> an annotated example right now for a hybrid study. It's based on our patient journey for the RSV vaccine trial. Um, where we are going to have a brick and mortar site, a pharmacy based research clinic, and an HCP involved with direct to patient shipment, and really trying to show people how we think you would fill out the 1572 and associated documents. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely an interesting area and one that I've no doubt many, many organizations are, are having similar discussions about and people planning, planning new trials. Well, that's a good segue because we'll have our collab co-leads and team members come on 
probably towards the end of the summer to talk about the resources they've developed to help teams navigate this. And again, we may not be right, but we want to give people a place to start and provide comment. So I want to just tie in so something we talked about at the beginning of the uh, hour and the conduct map. So we talked about kind of the discussions around uh, large language models. Um, did the team that developed the conduct maps, I know you were doing it before probably OpenAI even launched uh, ChatGPT3, but uh, have you played with that to see? It seems like there's definitely room for those models to really help us be much more efficient in finding information about um, you know, the information we need to populate a map like that. So have, has anyone been sort of playing with that, seeing if that helps you in terms of gathering the information? So this is the team, you know, Claudine, Tom, Jennifer, and Jane. I mean, yeah, the sh short answer is yes. I, I have definitely, I've definitely um, had a play around with ChatGPT to see what its capabilities are in that area. Um, I think I struggle to get the specificity of feedback from it that, that I suppose you would need if you were designing a, a specific trial, Sure. if that makes sense. So you've obviously got, there's just so many, as you know, so many factors. There's like a cocktail of factors when designing a trial and figuring out whether certain approaches are, are, um, are going to be allowed in, in certain regions. Um, but you can certainly pull generic guidance from it and it, and it's very good. What, one of the areas that it writes lovely guidance. So if you if you'll ask if you ask for it, one of the areas I struggled with was getting the reference for that guidance. Um, often providing it would provide links that were either outdated or didn't work as the reference, and I'd be like, I can't I can't fully trust it unless I know exactly where it's come from. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Tom. Which is the challenge that I've had when I've used it was. Sometimes you don't know where the source, where the information has come from. So you don't actually know how much you can trust it. I've seen some interesting um, hacks people are trying to almost uh, tease out the source um, in some of their follow-on prompts. I'm very new to good follow-on prompts. I'm a, a, I've been a rookie with ChatGPT just kind of showing up and asking a question. And we know that there is a process and a, um, a discipline for really setting up your question to get the right answer in terms of what persona you'd like the, the, the machine to respond to address and perhaps asking certain types of follow-on questions. Amir, have you seen folks that have started to almost hack the machine and, and trick it into sharing more about the sources it's using? Sure, so there's a couple of things to think about here. One is um, that you can actually use the models to check their own work. So you would open a new session and actually feed the information what you received and ask it to actually fact check it. That's one. Um, the second one is that obviously the newer models will have current access to the internet, which is important. Obviously, ChatGPT3 was limited when launched to, you know, when it stopped being uh, fed information. So I think that, so we need to use a model that has the, you know, connected life to the internet. We need to double check it with actually another session on it. And then I find that, you know, feeding the same question to different models 
uh, actually can give you slightly different answers and kind of gives you, if you get consistent answers, then that probably it's more accurate. So I think those are all things you do. In terms of prompting, I will give a heads up, actually. I don't think uh, we've actually announced this yet to the world, but um, we will have a whole series of webinars around this leading up to Siena Summit in November, just you know, back to back with the annual DTRA meeting. Uh, and the first one is literally going to be a 101 on uh, LLMs in general, but how to improve your prompting by someone who really is specialized for this for people in our in our area of the world so in terms of expertise so we're going to the first one is really going to be a 101 and how can we better prompt these models in life sciences and the work we do in drug development and that'll be accessible uh, asynchronously for anyone who uh, you know is in the community at Cena Summit I think it's time for an upcoming TGIF DCT on this convergence of GPT meets DCT, how is that for a ton of TLAs all thrown into one sentence? <laughs> Love it. <laughs> if you're out there in the audience and you'd like to participate, drop a note to Jane, Craig, Amir, through any of those channels we mentioned earlier, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse, or send a note to secretariat at dtra.org. We'd love to hear about the topics you'd like to see us cover in the weeks ahead. And if you'd like to participate as a guest, definitely let us know. Remember, if you're with us here live on Clubhouse, that's your best way to contribute to the conversation, whether through the live chat or by raising your hand and jumping on stage with your question for the brave. If you're listening through podcast on the Decentralized Podcast, be sure to give us a follow over there. I'm looking forward to continuing these conversations. I know last year we took a little bit of a hiatus in the summer. Amir, are we gonna are we gonna plow through the summer? Or are we gonna are we gonna give people a little beach break? You know, um, I'm certainly up for it, Craig. Uh, you probably know I've told you I've been traveling nonstop since December. I finally DIA was my last stop. I've canceled the trip to Amsterdam for the Alzheimer's meeting, although there's been a fantastic new news there. So I'm hoping not to travel for two months if that's physically possible. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to uh, do it as long as you're, you're around for sure. Sounds tempting. Jane, what do you think? Do we plow through the summer? I think if we have compelling topics, we want to be here. All right. And it may be worthwhile to do a, a bi-weekly summer mini break. Ooh, look at that. For the folks that are sitting in traffic headed to the Hamptons, the Jersey Shore, the Cape. <laughs> where, where do you guys sit in traffic on the uh, West Coast? Just about everywhere? We don't. We live by the beach and walk home. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> says Kalali in the paradise of Southern California. Jane, you have to deal with traffic up there. Not if you don't leave your house unless you run to the beach. So no, I don't. That's actually. it. You just lock yourself in the beach house and call it, call it done as long as there's internet connectivity. Well, for those of you on the East Coast dealing with your beach traffic, hopefully we can keep you company over there. I'd like to thank Claudine, Tom, Jennifer, both for their leadership in helping to compile this resource, the global conduct map, the link to which is pinned to the top of your page. It's in the chat. It will be in the um, in the LinkedIn feed for DTRA for those of you who are asynchronously 
with us here today. Check it out, share your feedback, help contribute to keeping this resource fresh. I want to thank this group of leaders both for sharing the input and the story of their work here today, but also for their commitment to uh, to the greater good and helping to make resources like this map available for the entire research community to help disintermediate some of the obstacles in this space, whether perceived or real, by putting sunlight out there. So my thanks to you, Jennifer Turcott, to Tom Brazier, and of course, of course, our friend, Claudine Paccio. Remember, if you have topics you'd love to see us cover, drop a line to us. And otherwise, I wish you all a fabulous, warm July weekend. Thanks all for joining us here today.